Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. One of the oldest parables passed along by word of mouth long before written communication comes from India, and it is the story of the blind men and the elephant. The number of blind men always fluctuates with each telling of the tale, but the moral of the story remains the same no matter what. And so for our telling of the story today, there will be five. Five blind men encounter an elephant for the first time. Now they had been told about, been told about elephants by fellow villagers, and each had drawn his own conclusion about what the animal may or may not be powerful giant, a graceful pet, an overgrown cow. They could not say for sure, but now here was an elephant at last that each could reach out and touch, a gentle mammoth that the Raja rode upon as he visited the villages of his kingdom. The first blind man reaches out and takes hold of one of the elephant's massive legs, and he says, this animal is something like a tree. It is strong and powerful, immovable. The second blind man put out his hand, and as he did, the elephant playfully reached out with his trunk. And the blind man fell backwards in fear, and he said, This elephant is just like a cobra, it's a snake. The third blind man, also at the front, found the point of the elephant's tusk. An elephant is sharp and lean like the spear of a warrior, he concluded. The fourth blind man felt a breeze and he reached out and took hold of the elephant's ear. He said, this animal is like a huge fan, maybe even a magic carpet that could fly over the treetops. Now this is in India centuries ago and he had not seen Dumbo yet, so it's a great observation. And finally... The fifth seeker happened upon the backside of the elephant and yanked on its thin, coarse tail. What was his conclusion? Why, this is no animal at all. An elephant is just one long rope. The men sat down in the shade of a banyan tree and began to talk about the elephant a little further. Was it really a tree? Was it a snake? Was it a spear? Was it a fan? Was it a magic carpet? Was it only a rope? And as they worked it out in conversation and thought, they realized that whatever an elephant was, it was very large. And it was so large that with their limited abilities and perceptions, they couldn't take it all in. And so they sat in silence with this for a long while. And finally, one of them said, to understand What we have experienced, we must put all the parts together. Only then can we know the truth.
That's a great story. And it remains, to this day, one of the most effective teaching devices we have. No one sees or understands everything. He or she be sighted or blind. Each of us can only speak from our own experience, our own perceptions. And each of us, every one of us, we all have blind spots, things that we know nothing about. We have to work together with others in order to see the big picture. All these lessons are there in this parable for the learning. But maybe the most important lesson is this. Some things are so gargantuan, so much bigger than we are, that we can only grab at the dark and describe a little bit of the mystery that we find there. At least, that's the most important philosophical lesson, the most important interpretive lesson. For example, the Bible. Let me show you this image from Chris Harrison. I want you to look at it for just a second. See all those colorful lines and how it almost creates a complete cacophony and rainbow of colors? This is a visual representation of the 64,000 usual cross-references in the Bible. Each time a correlation or a referral is made to another specific event within the Bible. And it's like this giant hyperlink illustration that you see here on the wall. It's overwhelming. We are all blind men and women who have seized pieces of the whole. We only have the tiny bit that our hands can touch, our minds can hold, and our lives can allow. The Bible is a massive anthology, a collection of our spiritual ancestors' own grappling in the dark, stretching out nervous hands out to take hold of God, or at least what they perceive to be God. And like them, we understand, we know what we know, and at the same time, we know and understand so little. Because even when the blind men put all of their experiences together, they still really didn't know what an elephant was, did they? Because they couldn't see it. I'll set forth a little more modest discussion today and not take the whole Bible as a whole. Not even a whole book. Maybe just part of a chapter. Less than 20 verses. A small serving of the Easter story. It's Luke 24, verses 13 through 32. Jesus, freshly risen from the dead, joins two travelers en route to the village of Emmaus, seven or so miles from Jerusalem. And it's one of the more remarkable post-resurrection accounts that we have. There are so many opinions about this story, so many interpretations, so many applications, observations, and themes. This one story is an elephant. It's massive. And for centuries, we readers and thinkers have been punching at it in the dark. This beautiful, powerful, tangled, sharp, sometimes funny, whimsical elephant. Learning so much, but leaving so much behind to think about and consider. It is today's reading on the third Sunday of Easter. It's rather lengthy, but it's necessary, so I'll read it as quickly as possible. 
that same day being Easter Day. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? As if he didn't know. They stopped short, sadness ridden across their faces. Then one of them said, Cleopas, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened here the last few days. Jesus, playing coy and, and so careful, what things? The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people, but our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to see, and it just like men to go make sure the women are telling the truth. Some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, by this time, they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey. Jesus acted as if he were going on, but they begged him, stay the night with us since it is getting late. So he went home with them. As they sat down to eat, he took the bread and he blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. And suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. They said to each other, didn't our hearts Burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us. Man, I've been cycling this passage through my mind day and night this week. I'm so taken with it that at some point I'm going to do an entire series of talks, I think, on this one story, some point in the future, not today. Just because there is so much that I see, so much that I want to see, having only come to understand tiny bits of it. But if I mix parables here, how do you eat an elephant? Do you know? One bite at a time. And bit by bit is the only way. And here are some of those bits that I see when I read this story. And again, there are so many themes and observations. I, I jotted down just a few. And each one of these could be an entire discussion, an entire talk, an entire sermon, an entire whatever. Notice first, that the disciples are moving away from Jerusalem. They are removing themselves from the center 
from the origin of the story, wandering in their grief to lesser places. Notice that Jesus meets them where they are. I mean, there's the talk about them being foolish, but there's no shaming. There's no immediate demands. He just comes alongside them, inviting them to reconsider and reinterpret everything they had previously understood. A challenge, to say the least. Notice that Jesus would have kept going if they had not invited him in. Where to? I don't know. But he was going to keep going. Their encounter with the Christ would have been much less had they not invited him in. Why couldn't they recognize him? Why did God allow their eyes to be closed for so long? And notice also that in their sorrow, they stopped in their tracks. Did you see that? They stopped. Sorrow written across their faces. And that's what grief can do to us sometimes. It sort of just stops us and blinds us, gives us the walking blues. This story is like a spider web with so many anchors in so many different directions. And then there are the more metaphorical applications. Catholic interpreters have seen this story as further establishment of the Eucharist, saying that you can never see the risen Christ without the breaking of the bread and the sharing of the wine. Evangelicals for years have called this the pattern for conversion. You have to invite Jesus into your home, into your heart. More metaphysical commentators have noted, noted that the village Emmaus has never been located, and it is likely a metaphor. It means boiling spring. The exact words are used. Did our hearts not boil like springs Within us, it's the final question, the final destination for each of us on our journey of faith. And if we dive into the literature itself, Luke, the author, is mimicking the introduction of Plato's Symposium, the most recognizable Greek philosophical discourse of the first century. And that story begins with Socrates walking down the road with his disciples trying to explain a great truth to them. And further still... This could be a parallel count to the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Luke spent a lot of time with him. Luke knew his story. And Luke adapts that story to this story because the Apostle Paul was blinded on the road when he met the, Apostle, when he met the Christ and only later had his eyes opened and only then did he find his voice and his feet beneath him to tell the good news. So, Depending upon how you approach this story and depending upon which part you take hold of will determine your conclusions. Those conclusions will likely be true, but mine will be too. And so will someone else's, but not completely. Is this a literal telling of the risen Christ? Yes and no. Is it about the Eucharist? Yes and no. Is it a call to conversion? Yes and no. Is it a metaphor, a parable within itself? Yes and no. It is all of these individual things and taken together it is even more. Here we are, blind men grasping at the shadows, throwing darts into the darkness. And I know I'm rambling a little bit, but honestly, when you deal with the Bible and the stories of the Bible as you're living, they can grow stale and cliched. And then suddenly one leaps off the page at you like you've never read it before and rambling is just sort of a default condition at that point. 
So let me, like a blind man, describe one small part of the story that I have touched and felt this week. For a lot of faith groups, for a lot of religion, the modus operandi is something like this. If you believe properly, then we will let you in. If you are converted, then you can join our team. If you profess faith, our particular faith, then we'll find a place for you. And I can give you a couple examples from my own upbringing and tradition. I've said for years that when I finally came of age, became a young adult, I wanted to be a Southern Baptist because they were so liberal. How's that for perspective? (laughs) No one in the churches of my youth was allowed to participate in the full fellowship of the congregation unless he or she was a member of the church. They couldn't teach a class. They couldn't sing in the choir. The pastor wouldn't even do your family member's funeral. You couldn't stay for a business meeting. Now, if you signed on the dotted line, if you joined up, and you got, then you got all the rights and privileges thereof. Conversion, then community. Belief, then belonging. Profession, and then place. And this was especially extended at the communion table. Now, I make a big deal about this table being open to all. And remember, you are welcome. Can we do that? And I have fielded all of the theological emails from critics who demand to know who I think I am or what do I do with Paul's warnings in 1 Corinthians about taking the elements in an unworthy manner, on and on, ad nauseum. To those I say that it is more unworthy to turn seekers away than it is to invite all we sinners in. I make a big deal about communion being open to all, largely because I grew up in an environment where it was essentially closed except to the elites, the members, not just members of the Christian faith. Oh, God, no. We can't trust all those other churches. Just the members of our church. And some of you know what I'm talking about. I don't know how many sermons I heard growing up, sermons about the evils of the Catholic Church. The occupier of the Vatican was the Antichrist. Roman Catholicism was the great whore of the book of Revelation. And meanwhile, we had our own little set of precious sacraments, our own means of exclusion that was as Catholic as the Pope. And if you don't belong, this isn't for you, is what... They would say, well, I can tell you this, there were no believers in the risen Christ on the road to Emmaus in this story today, not when the story begins. 
not when the journey begins. Jesus joined them. Jesus walked with them. Jesus taught them things and made applications to their personal situation, a furtherance of meeting them where they were. Jesus sat down with them and shared a meal with them. Then they believed. Then there was a conversion. Then they found their place and their legs and their voice to shout the good news of what they had experienced. If I am going to make mistakes as a Christian leader or facilitator, and I will make mistakes, we all do, or if I'm not really a Christian leader, if I'm, if I'm simply the caretaker of all of you free-range spiritual chickens, <laughs> I am going to err on the side of grace and welcome. Convert. Then you can be in the community. Profess and find your place here. No. Come and belong. Then you might just believe to find a faith of your own. Join our community. Not formally. That doesn't exist. Just be here. And it will be a part of converting us all. Find a place here among fellow travelers. It will change your professions. It will change and encourage you. Let's reverse the typical order. That's what I see on the road to Emmaus. This is difficult sometimes, especially if we're hanging on to only one piece of the giant elephant. But let's learn together how to receive others instead of rejecting others. Let's learn to invite, not alienate. Let us embrace not divide. Let's hold the door open and not slam it in people's faces. Let's welcome everyone to the table, not just those with card-carrying credentials. So, you're telling me you have one of those churches that makes it easy for people to get into. You got me! <laughs> Cat's out of the bag. I want this to be a place... With no locks on the doors, no bars on the windows, no one guarding the communion table to determine who is worthy or unworthy. I want this to be a place where all are welcome to worship God, learn what it means to follow Jesus, and be motivated and empowered to serve their neighbors. I want people to leave here every week prepared to make accusations against us. I imagine they would go something like this. You know that group down there, that simple faith group or whatever it is, they're not real clear on everything they believe. But I think they really believe in Jesus. Well, I thought they were just a bit irreverent, if you ask me, but they sure did seem to care about others. That place is just too non-traditional, but people seem to matter to them. I don't know what to make of that preacher and that crazy band, <laughs> but they seem like they love one another. This is a note from John Acuff. I've used it before. John's friend attends Our Lady of Lords Catholic Church in Daytona Beach. The church hands out a bookmarker to all newcomers. And John got a hold of one of these bookmarks, and he posted a picture of it on his website, and it caught fire and got picked up all over the country. And everyone, as usual, had an opinion about it. And sometimes, don't you wish we just turned the comments off on some things? Just Anyway. Some hated it, some loved it, some thought it was condescending. For my part, I love it, and I want to share it with you as I conclude. That bookmark reads like this. We extend a special welcome to those who are single, who are married, who are divorced, who are gay, who are filthy rich, who are dirt poor, who yo no hablo inglés. <laughs> <laughs> 
We extend a special welcome to those who are crying newborns, skinny as a rail, or could afford to lose a few pounds. We welcome you if you can sing like Andrea Boncelli or like our pastor who can't carry a note in a bucket. You're welcome if you're just browsing, if you just woke up, or if you just got out of jail. We don't care if you're more Catholic than the Pope or haven't been to church since little Joey's baptism. We extend a special welcome to those of you who are over 60 but not grown up yet, to teenagers who are growing up too fast. We welcome soccer moms, NASCAR dads, starving artists, tree huggers, latte sippers, vegetarians, and junk food eaters. We welcome those who are in recovery or who are still addicted. We welcome you if you're having problems or if you're down in the dumps or if you don't like organized religion because we've been there too. If you blew all your offering money at the dog track, you're welcome here. We offer a special welcome to those who think the earth is flat, who work too hard, who don't work, who can't spell, or because grandma is in town and she wanted you to go to church with her. We welcome those who are inked, pierced, or both. We offer a special welcome to those who could use a prayer right now, had religion shoved down their throat as a kid, or got lost in traffic and just wound up here by mistake. We welcome tourists, seekers, doubters, bleeding hearts, and we welcome you. And I say amen. Amen.